Hello, and welcome to the Tuesday, October 4th episode of The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. This is Craig W. Hurst, Emeritus Professor of Music, podcasting from my music bunker, along with my faithful canine companion, Carmel the Wonder Dog, to share with you my latest musical interests and discoveries. This episode was to have gone public last week on September 28th, 2021. Unfortunately, I had an interruption in my life on Sunday, September 26th, requiring me to visit the emergency room of my local hospital and eventually being implanted with a pacemaker. At least now I have my own personal metronome and it will be keeping time a whole lot better. And more importantly, I will live for a whole lot longer. I claim no special inside information about the latest or greatest music, nor do I know everything there is to know about music. What I am is a lover of music. I enjoy several genres of music and I share with you what has currently caught my interest, old, new, outdated, and everything in between. Even old music is brand new if you have never heard it before. The universe of music is a vast one to enjoy. From my discussions, you might find something new to you and of interest to expand your own musical universe. I currently receive no compensation or motivation of any kind from any recording label, recording artist, or estate of any performer or composer dead and gone to discuss their music and or recordings. Now with that out of the way, welcome to my musical universe. My guest today is Los Angeles-based Deb Ryder, a contemporary blues musician with the Viztone label group. Born in Chicago, she is known for her powerful vocals, captivating stage presence, and songwriting. She began singing at the age of five, joining her dad, crooner Al Swanson, on stage at several popular venues and churches in the Chicago area. Deb's musical career began in her early teens when her mother moved the family to Chicago and along with her stepfather opened the renowned rock and blues club, the Topanga Corral. There she opened for and performed with such legends as Etta James, Big Joe Turner, Taj Mahal, and Canned Heat, all regulars at the club. These artists mentored writer, and it was then that her vision of herself as a singer, songwriter, and performer began to take shape. Neighbor Bob Height of Canned Heat took Deb under his wing and carefully selected records from his vast collection to school her in blues music. Miss Etta James, who regularly stayed at the house, took time working with Ryder on her vocals and songwriting. 
telling her one day, you got it. Now you're singing and writing the blues. These affirmations from her mentors set Deb firmly on her musical path. Ryder enjoyed a professional career performing on numerous national television commercials, motion pictures, Las Vegas musicals, and had a very successful run as a session artist in Los Angeles. Her first record, Might Just Get Lucky, recorded and produced by Deb and husband, bassist Rick Ryder, was released in 2014 on BEJEB Music and put her on the blues radar. She then teamed up with Grammy Award-winning producer, drummer, Tony Braunagel, and released three critically acclaimed chart-topping records, Let It Rain, Grease, Grit, and Tears, and Enjoy the Ride from 2015 to 2018. With her signature arrangements and impe impeccable songwriting, you can expect her to continue to imprint her in indelible mark on the blues world, now and in the future. Her vocal ability puts her among those great female blues singers that preceded her. There is no reason why she shouldn't ascend to the higher ranks of the blues elite, according to Greg Blues Dog Zaloni from Blues Blast magazine. This is an artist that deftly combines polished musicianship with a deep respect for blues tradition. Deb Ryder deserves a spot on every blues fan's radar, according to John Kleinman of Living Blues magazine. It is my wonderful pleasure to welcome to my musical universe Deb Ryder. Hi, Deb. It's great to talk with you. How are you? Thank you for having me today. You bet. I'm really, uh, really wonderful to have you as a guest. Let's get right to your newest album, Memphis Moonlight. The album is a set of 13 songs. Did you write all the originals or did you have others contribute? The only other person that contributed to the writing was my husband, Rick. And that was on two of the songs. One is Blues Is All I Got and the other's Devil's Credit Line. He and I wrote those two together. And this is, this is not something really new for us. Generally, I springboard everything off my husband. He's a very talented man. And, uh, you know, we, we really had so much time on our hands doing this record that we could really get into the lyrics, break them down. Well, you know what I'd rather hear there or, or, you know, let's put this on and let's use this as a bridge. I generally write the bridges, but he actually contributed some of the, the lyrics on both of those tunes. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I write all my own material. I'm a prolific writer. Oh, wonderful. I, wonderful. I just don't stop. I started writing something this morning, just waiting for you to start the meeting. So I just keep writing all the time. You know, it's the thing about people who are creative people. There is no off switch. No, no. And we're both retired now. Uh -huh. So I, I don't know about you, but I wake up at like, 
I don't know why my eyes open at like five in the morning and I'll sneak down here and make some coffee and do some work. I might take a nap later, but you know, it's a quiet time for me. We just moved our son up to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're, it's quiet here and mm -hmm. uh, I'm getting some more work done. Yeah. This, this record is, was completely different than anything I'd ever done before. We started off, we got into the studio on a Tuesday early in February, or maybe it was late February. And in our usual format with all the usual suspects, I work with Tony Bronigal, Johnny Lee Shell, Mike Finnegan, you know, Rick Ryder, all these great musicians. And we got about four basic tracks of the original material that we had slotted for the record. And the pandemic shutdown in LA happened the following day. <laughs> and, and nobody, we didn't know what we were gonna do. Were we gonna just wait and see what happened or you know, what was gonna happen? And nobody knew when we could get back into the studio or how soon it would be. So because as I said, I'm a very prolific writer and all of a sudden I had this incredible time and thank God I had something to do during all this time of lockdown, I ended up writing about five, four more songs that I felt were better contributions to the new record than what we originally decided. So we set some stuff aside and, and, and this record started to become a remote project. It took us a while to get that going, to get it to where we could actually figure out how to do this and largely who played on it had to do with who had the capacity to record from their home, from their office, from their own studio, whatever it was. So um, that's how this got started. Okay. Well, that, that kind of gets into to some of the other questions I was going to ask you that, but, you know, because, uh, you know, the album was produced, produced by Tony and your husband right. and, and you had a, a, a stellar cast of musicians yes. and yes. special guests on the album, which which really make it a remarkable recording, in my opinion. Oh, uh, and and were there, oh, you know, the kind of specific contributions made by these various musicians uh, to the, I mean, how did they contribute to the overall sound or how did they guide the way you performed or did, what sorts of changes did they suggest like during the recording process? Well, first of all, the last physical BMAs where everybody was in Memphis, um, I was rehearsing backstage with my friend Whitney Shea and we were waiting to go up and do some backgrounds for Shamika Copeland oh, okay. on the main stage. And Ronnie Earl was off to the side. They have that photo wall in backstage. Okay. And it's, you know, it says BMAs and Blues Foundation and everything. And everybody goes there to have their picture taken. And Ronnie Earl happened to be standing there. And there were so many photographers just clicking away. And we're quietly trying to, you know, rehearse the parts off to the side. And we turn to leave and I hear, wait, stop. And I, I turned around to see who Ronnie Earl was talking to. And my friend says, I think he's talking to you. <laughs> and I said, no. Nah. And he goes, Deb, wait. So of course I stood there and waited patiently. He comes over and he says, you know, your music plays all the time on our local station. He says, I love what you do. 
I love your voice. I love your writing. Let's do something together. And Tony was there because he was going to play drums with this whole ensemble. Mm -hmm. And Rosie from uh, Vistone was there. And they both went, did, did he just say he wants you to? So in this particular case, I stopped and wrote music specifically for him. Ah. Knowing his wheelhouse, how he plays. I made a, a great study of it, actually. <laughs> and I wrote Love is Gone. And he loved it. He said, that's a great song and that's perfect for me. So that was, of course, one of the ones that that we we ended up doing. Wow. And then in, in the case of these other performers, I've always been incredibly lucky. I don't know what it is. All of my records have stellar guest stars on them. I mean, just mm -hmm. the best. And they ask me if, hey, Deb, you got room for me on your next record, mm -hmm. which always blows my mind every single time. I mean, like Ronnie Earl, I'm still amazed, but mm -hmm. you know, there he is. Um, then from there, it generally has to do with once, once I write the lyrics and once I set the pentameter, the pentameter of the, the poetry, it kind of tells me what, cause I'm very eclectic with the blues. I do many styles of blues, mm -hmm. but it kind of tells me where I'm going with that song. And so then I know what instrumentation I'm gonna have. And so generally speaking, what happened in this particular case is I would sing the tune, I'd pick the key, my husband and I would work out the key. I'd sing the tune into my little cell phone voice recorder mm -hmm. with my foot going you know, in the rhythm and get it as close as what I thought I wanted to have it sound like. And I'd send it off to Johnny Lee Shell who was alone in his studio at that time, who would sit and he'd put down the most basic guitar track. And then we'd go back and forth and we'd decide, well, you know, I wanted a little bit more rock or I wanted a little less rock or I want a little more jazz or whatever it's gonna be. And once we would get to the point that, that we understood the real direction, you know, and Tony would have a lot of input on that, so would Rick then I'd know who I wanted to play on it. And then it was just a matter of remotely sending the tracks to those individuals that could in fact play. Like a lot of the bass was done by Johnny and Travis Carlton. Travis would do four, four takes with different flavors on each one and send it back. We ended up doing the horns live in the studio because they could isolate in the booth. Mm -hmm. And I ended up doing a lot of the vocals, some of them at Ultratone with Johnny Lee and a lot of vocals up at a studio called Mystic Mountain Sounds out in the desert. So I could just kind of be by myself, you know. So we tried to be as safe as possible, but that's how these selections are usually made. Wow. We go, that, we go back really, Yeah, that's really an incredible process. On Wednesday, I was uh, involved in a panel discussion on Zoom uh, amongst, uh, uh, well, musical entrepreneurs in the greater Milwaukee area. And we were talking about how wonderful technology is today and how it's allowed us to do something. Continue. Otherwise, yes. otherwise, we wouldn't be doing anything. And I made the comment and everyone seemed to agree that if, ten, if COVID had hit 10 to 15 years ago, we would have been totally screwed. It's true. 
And because... I really think that I really think that what we've learned during this is going to really influence a lot of where music goes when we well, finally get back to when things start up again. Um, I did a lot of virtual stuff too during you know worked for K Jazz and worked for different stations and did a lot of virtual concerts. And uh, thank God, you know, and, and I'm not the most technically savvy person, you know, just show me the microphone. That's all mm -hmm. I need. I'm not really, I'll write the song, I'll do an arrangement, I'll work things out, I'll, I'll get the song pretty much where it needs to go. And then I have this incredible, talented bunch of folks that I work with. But yeah, we wouldn't have been able to do anything Mm -hmm. without, you know, some of these individuals, ha this village of talented people who were innovative and technically savvy enough to contribute to the record. I think it's a much better record for it, actually, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because generally the process is to go in and four days later, you pretty much have what you got. Well, I tell you what, I think, I, I, my opinion, take it for what it's worth, is I think we're going to see a jump in the way recordings are made, yes. much in the same way when we made the jump from one microphone in a studio recording an entire band right. to close miking, or even when we went from mono to stereo. Right. And I think and, we're going to- And there are some huge, yeah, huge breaks in that, you know? Yeah, yeah. But it, it has to be this way. We don't know what's, we don't know still, even now with this new Delta variant, mm -hmm. you know, and all the cases, we're not out of the woods yet. We're not at a point yet where we can say we can even, I've, fortunately, I've done a few festivals. By the hair of my chinny chin chin, I got there. I was safe, tested when I got back, everything's been fine, mm -hmm. you know, and I felt really blessed to be able to participate in a few of them, but this yeah. is going to be the way of the future. It has to be. I got to tell you, I was really overjoyed to be able to sit with this music yeah. for a time period and go, I love it. Nah, I don't love it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> let's redo this sure. or let's redo that. I tend to be real hands-on in the studio. I'm really, you know, every note I, I run through and think about, but but on this record, I had to let a, a lot of my music be. Mm -hmm. You know, there were safety factors involved. Do I really want to involve someone in redoing something? Or am I really going to love that contribution? And, and in many cases, this taught me to be a lot more tolerant of other people's talents mm -hmm. and abilities and, and trust in the outcome. You know, I, I like I say, I work with these wonderful people. Tony's very, very talented. My, my husband is super talented. Thank God I've got some talent in there. And our son has no musical talent whatsoever. Oh, none. <laughs> well, knows? I guess that, that shows it does not travel by DNA. <laughs> that's not. He's a very talented teacher, though. That's what he does. Well, that's what I would guess. If he's going to, you know, Cal Poly, that's, yes. that's a pretty... And, and he was accepted immediately. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's a very bright guy. Yeah, I would think so. Guy. Going to going to school there, they uh, yeah. So that's 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 really great. I you know, and to hear you know, I, the what came to my mind while you were talking is that uh, this album is sort of like you were allowed to allow the music to steep a little bit longer, so you're going to get a much more flavorful flavorful tea. And. 
and we were isolated. And I think you, I think you'll agree. There's such a variety of sounds and flavors on this record. Speaking yes. of a flavorful tea, we had the opportunity to really explore some styles that we really hadn't done before, and the capability based on these great players to get those things really worked out and and put in a, a place where I was super happy, you know, with, yeah. with the outcome. You never know with any record that you release. I mean, this is number five for me. Thank the Lord, knock on wood, whatever it is, I've always had success with my records. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of that has to do with, you know, the publicists I've worked with and, and the producers. And But in this particular case, I think this album is different than the ones I've done in the past. I would agree completely. I've listened yeah. since I knew I was going to be interviewing you as I do with all artists. I listen to everything I can find that you've recorded. <laughs> Thank you. Or at least on, you know, that's available. Uh, and and I would agree that uh, your, your newest recording is, I would say it's a stark departure, but it does have a different flavor to it than your earlier work. It, it does have to do with that being I able mean, to live with it for a while. There were a lot of changes that we did. Yeah. Not not really major ones, but major enough to get it where we wanted it to go. Yeah. You know? Well, and and I, I've got to give a lot of credit to Johnny Lee Shell. He he had to redo some stuff. I mean, there was nobody else to redo it. It was his studio. He was there at the studio. There were things that he redid for me, solos and bass lines and and you know, and Tony is always very innovative with the, how do you want to put it, the, the directionality of where the bridge and where the verse goes, where's the chorus come in, how long of a solo, are we going to play out at the end? You know, he's very talented with that. And so there were many, many changes that were made and some we agreed upon, some we didn't. Sometimes I'll just stick to my guns, mm -hmm. you know, and say, mm -hmm. no, uh, for example, Memphis Moonlight, every once in a while, I hope I'm not segueing in a weird direction, but every once in a while, a song, this is the title track I'm talking about from the mm -hmm. record. The song will yes. come to me pretty much in its entirety. I had a five hour drive. By the time I got where I was going, I'd gotten the concept for the song, written all the lyrics, knew how I wanted it to sound. And when we got, I got over to Johnny's just to do the, the basic scratch track, that was the final track. We oh, didn't. Wow. Re we never redid the vocal. He'd never heard the song. He got it immediately. He understood the song perfectly. We added a couple remotely placed background vocals mm -hmm. and a tambourine. Huh. That is the scratch vocal on that track. In its innocence and simplicity and completeness, there just wasn't anything to fix. Well, I, you know, and that never happens, but these you know, are some of the different things that happened on this record. That's, that, it's remarkable to think that, you know, uh, you know, it's always interesting. I, musically speaking, I hit from many sides of the plate because I have classical training, but I also play jazz and I play, I love all kinds of music. And, you know, and one of the things that we studied in uh, college about music was like comparing Beethoven and Mozart, 
Beethoven yeah. left stacks of sketchbooks because he would get an idea and he would work it over and work it over and work it over and work it over. Right. Mozart left no sketchbooks because he, he had it all worked out. Yep, That's he right. was just ta- he was just taking dictation. That's right. When he, when he wrote music, and so that could happen even you know to the rest of us. Uh, you <laughs> it know, does you, with me on occasion, and this was one of them. I yeah I, yeah. I didn't really understand it completely, but when I was finished, I felt so strongly about the song. I said, "Well, I'm just gonna I'm gonna take it over to Johnny's." Mm-hmm. And first I'd done what I do. I recorded it in my phone and then I took it over there. Okay. And we were finished. One take. Yeah. Done. Just he and I. Sure. I was yeah. sitting on the sofa with the mic. He was sitting at his board. He hit record and turned around and played. Oh, I nice. sang at him. He played at me. Done. Wow, that's great. That's great. Well, I have an I have an aesthetics question to ask you because I am I am a semi-retired college professor, so I have to, you know, throw in something a little philosophical. You know, the ancient Greeks believed that tragedy and drama served as an emotional catharsis for the viewer of the play. Does your music merely reflect your observations or personal inclinations? Or do you write to serve as a catharsis for yourself and those who consume your music? Completely a catharsis for myself and those who enjoy and like my music. I, I felt very strongly that going through what everyone was going through, and I think you'll agree many of the songs on this have an uplifting character. Mm-hmm. I wanted them to be an inspiration in some senses, like the song, Hold On. I know it gets a little bit political, but really the message is, you know, when it's too dark, when you just don't know what's gonna happen, just light one candle and the dawn will come. All we gotta do is hold on. And, and in, in like, Get Ready, for example, it's, you know, it's a call to arms. I, I, I just really felt a call to action was necessary. And, so I chose a lot of the songs based on wanting that, that personal and involvement with others. Mm-hmm. With I, well, I do believe that. You, you've, you have beautifully led me into my next question. <laughs> Good. It's almost like we rehearsed it. <laughs> no, but we didn't. <laughs> no, we didn't. There is, and this is me speaking as a listener to your music. There is a lot about the healing power of music in your work. Yes. yes. Would you be as specific as possible about what you witness for yourself personally, as well as what music does for others? And by the way, you will be preaching to the choir here. Yes. I too strongly <laughs> believe the power of music to heal and sustain and make our lives better. I really do believe that as well. I wonder where my life would be if music hadn't been involved in it all, all of my life. Since I was a young girl, music has played a really large role in my life. And I think one of the moments that it was most clear to me that this was a path that I wanted to be on was as a young teen, I, I lived in Topanga Canyon, my folks ran the biggest blues and rock club in Los Angeles called the Topanga Corral. And there were five of us siblings, all of which are musicians except one. We're not sure if he's the milkman's child or 
what happened there, but, but we're all musicians, all of my brothers, every one of us sings, plays an instrument, mm-hmm. you know, writes music. Our background was not one that was particularly healthy. And I think that to start with, that was where the healing began. We had music in everything we did. And then as a family, we played music. This was with my stepfather and my mom. And the bedroom wall in my little room, there were four boys in me, so I had to have my own room. I had to get away from those boys somehow. But the wall in my bedroom pretty much adjoined the wall back of the stage at the club. So there was no chance of any sleep, no hope of getting any sleep. So Mm -hmm. I'd be down at the club every single night. And I, I, my eyes were opened. I'd, I'd stand at the edge of the stage and I'd hear some of these greats, Taj Mahal, Etta James, Neil Young, the Eagles, Joni Mitchell would be there. I mean, just all the greatest bands that possibly could. And then all their entourage and all the people that you meet. And I was a pretty shy, very shy young girl. You know, I, I didn't really have a lot of friends but these great artists would allow me to open for them on their sets at the club. Wow. So I was the kid, they called me the kid. I, I remember Big Joe Turner every Sunday would have his Big Joe Turner Blues Sunday. I'll be darned. And I would run up the ramp. I'm here, Big Joe, I'm here. And he'd go, well, little girl, warm up that band. And of course I knew every one of his tunes. So mm-hmm. I'd warm up his band. He liked to hang over and have a drink with fellow that you know the promoter that did the the blues day it made me understand that that anybody anywhere no matter what your background no matter what your involvement in life is you can be a part of music you know i believe music is in all of us i think all of us have something to contribute whether it's lyrically or or musically to art in general and Mm -hmm it was the most healing time in my life. And it made me understand. Well, especially when some of the artists would say, you know, you can sing the blues. You can really sing the blues and you're a blues artist. Start writing the blues. Well, that was a trial and error process. Cause you know, it's not easy to write the blues. It's not, everybody says it's, it's not easy. It's, there's a very specific formula to this genre that I believe must be maintained traditionally Mm -hmm. so it's not easy but Mm -hmm. it just was the most healing time in my life and i i'm so grateful for those opportunities and and for everybody that's ever given me a chance and given me the feedback that that i'm somebody you know Mm -hmm. it's really something it's hard to believe sometimes but i'm so grateful for it And, and i really believe even the people that when I go to a festival, blues fans, they love you. They, they adore the music. It's so healing and uplifting for them. There's nothing better than a great blues audience. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, music is the greatest healer of all. Well, I, I won't uh, argue with that. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a, I'm a, I am a music educator and have been all, you know, through my professional life and and career and continue to do so and i believe in that that uh wonderful elixir 
that music can be, either as a listener or as a performer? You know, I study almost every day. I will put an artist up, I'll hear about, well, who's this guy? Mm-hmm. You know, I'll listen to everything he's got. Mm-hmm. I, I've always been a really good student. You would appreciate that as a professor. <laughs> <laughs> I was always a really straight A student. And I, I, but I do make a really good study of the musicians that are around me or coming out or what's mm-hmm. happening. You know, I want to stay current and I want to, but I also just get this kick in the pants jolt every time I put something on and it's just great, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it's, it's an emotional connection that, that you can't explain. It's just, it's overwhelming sometimes. I know exactly what you're talking about, but I can't put it into words because yeah. you're absolutely right. It is so cool when you, you get that jolt as you say when you discover you know somebody's music and go my gosh where have I been you know where's this been all my life right right that happened to me just the other day and I I just was I was mesmerized by a couple of artists and uh and I I I really that is also educational in my writing Mm -hmm. I'll hear some way of approaching a subject that might be different than the way my brain approaches it Mm -hmm. And it's just, I love the education of it. I feel so connected every day. And, you know, that's the whole reason. I mean, Rick and I have been together 43 years doing music together. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not saying our marriage is perfect by any means, but I can't imagine who he would have been with or who I would have been with because music is so much a part of what what we do, how we experience life. Mm-hmm. how we how we conduct our relationship you know our social mm-hmm. life is all sure. musical everything sure. it's all is, so connected it's the same way with my wife and i i mean she's uh she's also a retired uh college music professor and we met at the university and we both are active musicians and i don't know what we'd do without music so i know exactly what you're talking about you know you were talking about uh, an educated sort of uh, way of, of looking at things. And I, I want to ask you a question that uh, for my listeners and hear it from you. Uh, you know, we often associate the blues with the American South and specifically perhaps the Mississippi Delta region. Um, and so the question is, is the blues truly an international style or is it a regional style that is imitated internationally? Now, when I ask this question, I'm thinking about blues musicians from outside of the Southern United States, like yourself, or a Canadian like Harp Dog Brown. Uh, and I'm also thinking about all of the blues influenced English rock bands and musicians like the Animals and the Rolling Stones, Eric Clapton, John Mile, et cetera. Right. The, the, you know, people from the Thames cotton fields. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I think it's undeniable that the true roots of the blues uh, come from the South and, and from the heritage of of African-American people. And I do believe that it is truly the source from all of it. And we have to give great respect to that because 
those origins are undeniable. It, it's the way it is. And, and I appreciate that. And, you know, I, I, I highly respect everyone who's come before me and, and those individuals, like you say, across the pond, I do believe that it was an imitative form. I do believe. I think though that what they did is reestablish the love of the genre through all of their different styles, through all of the ways that they interpreted this great American genre. Mm -hmm. And and I I agree that, you know, I mean everybody has different ideas of of where the blues came from, but I think it's undeniable that it is the heritage heritage of slaves brought to this country who worked in the South and sang these songs. And, and I believe it started off as a, a verbal heritage, you know, that it was mm -hmm. vocal. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, so I'd say it's, but there's, there's just so many different styles and colors of it, but it all stems from that black history. Mm -hmm. Well, I've I've heard it said. I think uh, uh, the documentary uh, filmmaker, um, boy, now I'm forgetting his name. Is it Ken Burns? Yes, thank you. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> I was just watching something by him last night, or I probably remember. yeah, Ken Burns. You know, he had the, he had that wonderful documentary on jazz that came out. Oh, oh my oh, gosh, twenty it. plus years ago. I can't believe how how long ago that was now. Oh. But I know in that documentary makes the statement that the blues is the taproot of all American music. It's true. I believe it's absolutely true. And I think there was a, a record that, that had it as a title recently, the blues is the roots and the rest is the fruits. Oh, that's you know? an interesting title. And, and it, it really does suggest that from there, all other genres that we consider mm -hmm. American music sprang and i would totally agree with that yeah. you know uh, that heritage is probably the most important thing about this genre well, just... and, you know and then i would suggest like you know what the english did was not merely an echo it was a sonic boom it's like you know they took the blues and they blew it right back at us you know it's the the song uh, blues is all i got which is on the record yeah. which can be a little bit campy, but really I tried so hard to give it that vintage British blues attitude. Okay. From, from some of that music, you know, if you listen to that song. Okay. Um, it was really important at the time that these artists be recognized by these major rock and rollers as the originators of electric blues and that they brought them over, you know, to play, reestablished, I think, the love of the genre in America. Yeah, I, don't I, know where, I don't know where we would be now if they hadn't done that. You know, oh, you're spot on. You're yeah. spot on because it was the British that really taught us. And when I say us, I'm saying white America. Right. Uh, about this wonderful music that was right there with us all along, but we were yes. kind of ignoring because of, you know, racial differences and so on. I love the story about how when the Rolling Stones wanted to record at Chess Records in Chicago, and as they were unloading, 
a guy came out to help them unload their equipment and it was muddy waters yes the very person I heard that, that they, story the very person they admired and well, uh i thought that was that was kind of interesting you know you have already talked about some awesome experiences and people that you have breathed the same air as. I'm going to ask you, if you would, can you narrow down and reflect on maybe what is the most memorable experience of your career? Of my career? Okay, or of your musical life. Okay, well, because there's so many. Yes, I, I understand. Oh, yeah. and I, I've got a lot. From what you've told me already, we could we could we could fill several volumes of you well, just talking a, about. There's a couple of experiences that I think really put the indelible stamp of of being a blues artist and and being a songwriter. Uh, I was talking to you about the corral, and back in that day, we had a few cabins uh, behind the club, back on the property. It's a large property. And some of the artists would stay overnight because Topanga is kind of far from anywhere. So they would request to stay at the cabin. And one of them was Etta James. She would come and stay. And I was, like I told you, I spent a lot of time in front of the stage. She, every word she spoke, every move that she made, every vocal sound, she would have you wrapped around her finger. Every song she wrote seemed perfectly formed, like the holy grail of female blues artists. I mean, I was, I was wrapped up and I was pretty young and uh, she'd be back there at the cabin and I'd, hello, Miss Etta, hello. And she'd let me in. Why? Don't ask me, she'd let me in. Sometimes she'd go, oh, all right, you know, <laughs> but she'd let me in and she'd spend some time and I'd, I'd run some of my little tunes by her. And, and, you know, for the most part, I mean, she wasn't easy on me, thank God, because she wanted me to be, she felt I had a great voice, but back in those days, you know, all the vocal licks and all the stuff the girls were doing, you know, had nothing to do with singing the blues or writing the blues. She'd tell me to take all these words out of the songs and she'd tell me, what do you think you're trying to do? Do you really think you're going to rewrite the blues or rerun the wheel? And she'd spend a little time with me. And one day, I don't know if I, the light bulb went on. I ran something by her and she said, now you got it. Wow. Now you're singing the blues. So I want you to open for me this next Friday night. And it was at a club in town. And, and I did, me and my little band, we went down and we opened the show and that was really memorable. She introduced me as an up and coming blues artist, which, you know, I think Mike Finnegan was on that gig actually. And um, another, after that in high school, again, I was kind of a shy kid and I saw this, and I was playing guitar at that point, really doing well. Uh, I think it was A&R Records had come by and offered me a deal, you know, mm. I was kind of, my stepfather wouldn't allow it too bad for me. But anyway, I see talent show on the door at the high school. And so I needed a band. So I went to my stepfather and I said, I need a, I need a band for the talent show. And he said, okay. And he got me Neil Young and Crazy Horse. <laughs> <laughs> 
So there I am with my little guitar and my little velvet dress on, you know, and the curtains opened and every face in the crowd just, you know, eyes wide open. You could have heard a pin drop. And I'll be damned if they didn't learn my music. I mean, so I turned around and went, one, two, one, two, three, and they all played. And everybody was just, so those are some some memorable moments, but I've had a lot of, a lot of great festivals oh. I've done. That was a lot of fun. Oh, let's see. I mean, I could just go on. I don't know how well, much Well, I tell you what, those two stories alone, <laughs> I don't know I we how you could top them. I mean, Etta James, I love. I mean, she could yes. sing two words at last and she wouldn't have to do another thing. And I'd be, I'd be she wrapped. She was probably one of the most phenomenal female artists ever you know and when she when you were on an intimate basis where you were close to her and you could watch what she did and how she how she directed the band and everything she did she was just the most phenomenal performer ever and i'm really impressed with what you just told me about neil young and crazy horse the fact that <laughs> they, they learned band. the fact that they learned your charts though my is little, a true testament to their high <laughs> level of professionalism. My you little know? beginning songs, they learned yeah. them, they played the hell out of them. But that's just the point. I mean, to me, that's consummate professionalism. You're <laughs> asked to do awesome. something, and if you agree to do it, you do it the very best that you can. That I had is an ev- awesome story. I had a lot of dates after that. <laughs> yeah, in high you. school. I was yeah. the popular girl at school after that. Oh boy, I'll tell you. Well, I, let's <laughs> let's move on to talking about Deb, the songwriter. Tell us yep. a bit about your creative process. What inspires you to write? I write about everything. A lot of it is life experience, and then sometimes it's just complete fantasy. It has mm-hmm. nothing to do with me. It's just it's like a noir movie reel running in the background, you know. And I get some inspiration from maybe an old movie or something somebody's talking about. But um, generally, it starts with the lyrics first. Oh, okay. and I might have I might have ten or twelve songs going on at the same time. Okay, I'm constantly writing. Sometimes I'll get a line for something, and I'll think, "Well, wait a minute, that should go over on that song over there," you know, mm-hmm. and I'll move things around. But lyrically first, and then if I really come up with something I feel is viable, I will. I, as I say, I listen constantly. I might get an idea from hearing somebody's style on something they did that will reflect on something I'm working on. And from there, I record everything into a little, I've got just hours of little recordings either on my laptop or on my phone. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I work it out until I have it to the point where I can run it by somebody. Generally, Rick is first. We'll work on things lyrically or we'll work on things musically. And then from there, if it's something that we decide we're going to record and we have a project coming, uh, either we'll go in and do a demo or we'll generally a demo first, you know, just a simple demo of the tune so I can run it by somebody else and say, are you interested? You know, I'm very, I'm very pleased right now. I've got all these musicians wanting me to write songs for them. Mm-hmm. I've got about four musicians that are, one of them is recording two of my songs right now. And 
and they're well-known blues artists. And uh, so that inspires me to write more. Mm-hmm. It inspires me to, gosh, if they like what I'm doing, I must be okay, you know? Sure. So I'll write something else. Um, very eclectic writer. It, mm-hmm. it largely experience in life, experience in my own relationship or my relationships with friends mm-hmm. and family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, from there, the pandemic and everything, everybody went through emotionally. Uh, for example, uh, the song, Just Be Careful. I unfortunately lost my mom during this pandemic. Mm-hmm. And it was sad because you couldn't go see her. You couldn't have a funeral. You couldn't, you know, you couldn't involve yourself in any way. So there just wasn't any closure except to write a song about it. My mom was just a firecracker. She was this oh. little, she was just this little go-go dancer. You know, she was, mm-hmm. she had five children. She weighed all of 90 pounds. I look more like my dad, the Swede, but he, she was just this little bitty rocker. And uh, she was from the Midwest and the Chicago area. And she would deliver advice in gold nuggets of one-liners like if you can't be good just be careful Mm -hmm. or you know don't be afraid to speak your mind but always be kind they were like these little nuggets of advice and after she passed i i remembered so many of them i put that down on a song but being that she really liked a boogie i made it a boogie (laughs) so so sometimes it's just a commemoration of, of something in my life. You know? Well, I, I have to tell you, I, I'm sorry for your loss. And isn't it wonderful that music can help assuage the pain oh, yeah, of that loss? Love, she would love this song. Yeah. You know, something I thought of when you were talking about your creative process, you, you talked about earlier in the interview about how blues is not an easy form to write. And then you start with the lyrics. So my question is, do you look at the blues as a poetic form as much as it is a musical form? Not at all. Oh, this is just my process. I see. I I think it's a vocal form. Okay. But the style of blues that the song is going to end up usually has to do with a, the subject matter, B the pentameter of the lyrics, you know, the poetry how I'm going to approach the music. Sometimes the process is I get a lick stuck in my head and it won't go away. Mm -hmm. So I have to add lyrics to that. You know, I have a lot of different processes. Um, It's, it's a difficult form in that I believe you can get too far outside the box and not, and not show the respect and appreciation that the genre requires. Sure. If, if you and I tend to color a bit outside the lines, mm-hmm. you know, with my blues, but then I'll come back with something that's just downright traditional. And I, sure. I, think, I think that paying homage to the tradition is very important. So in that sense, it's not as easy to write as maybe a pop song. Sure. But no, I think I understand. I mean, you know, you wouldn't want to have a traditional blues and you know, put a disco ball on it. Right, exactly. That, that would kind of be, uh, yeah. Well, I, I have a question for you. Uh, sure. If you cover a song that has been recorded by an artist of the past, I suppose there's two ways you could go. 
either you could try to come as close as possible to doing the song in a similar way as the uh, original artist, or going in a completely opposite direction and making it an original sound for yourself. In other words, making it your song. How would you approach that situation? I would definitely approach the imitation of the real deal. Okay. I, I have a really versatile ability to be able to sing like just about anybody. Okay. And when it comes to something that I would want to cover, it would have to do with the vocals. It okay. would have to do with how they sang that song. You know, I play a little guitar, but I'm not really an instrumentalist. Mm -hmm. I play guitar. But you won't see me performing with a guitar. So my approach is going to be to make those vocals shine. Mm -hmm. Now, I might put a little of my spin on it, but probably I'm going to do as close to the original because I can do that. Mm -hmm. And some people can't do that. You know, they have to make it their own because they can't approach that style. And I, I, I have the ability to be able to do it. So I would definitely, I don't do a lot of covers. I do yeah. a few when I perform live. Generally, mm -hmm. I tend to favor 50s Chicago electric blues. Yeah. If I'm gonna cover something, it's gonna be Otis Rush mm -hmm. or Big Mama Thornton or, you know, some of those early, as a matter of fact, I went to France. I had a kind of a successful tour and, and uh, big crowds. And I was playing with Peter Vanderplum, Big Pete mm -hmm. and his band from the Netherlands. And we went through France and we covered a lot of that material, not only because he's a great Chicago harp player, mm -hmm. his style lends to that, but because that music just resonates with everybody so mm -hmm. well. And when you cover it and it's reminiscent to them of what they loved hearing, they would go crazy. They oh, sure it. they would. Sure they would. Yeah. Well, that kind of leads me. You're doing such a beautiful job here. <laughs> I'll, I'll put a little something extra in your Christmas Club account. Oh, thank you. You're, you're really being an excellent guest and leading oh, me up to, you know, you, you, you've already spoken that vocals really draw you to particular songs uh, and, the, and the way they do it. But I do need to ask you, as a blues musician, do you believe that there are blues standards? You know, we, we, we think about standards as songs that everybody does, you know, and we think of like the great American songbook of, you know, popular songs that have, that have existed. But are there blues standards, you know, songs like C.C. Ryder and Smokestack Lightning or Absolutely. the St. Louis Blues? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I would, I would call a lot of Muddy Waters stuff standards. Buddy yeah. Guy's music, I considered. A lot of Buddy Guy's hits are standards. Um, you know, Etta James's music, I'd say there's a lot of standards in there. Sure. Definitely, there are okay. standards. And, and you got to have a little trick bag of those, because why are you performing if it's not for your audience anyway? Well, exactly. I mean, these people come to see you, and, and, and they want an experience. And in my case, I do largely my own original music, especially mm -hmm. right now. I've mm -hmm. got a couple of gigs coming up because I'm pushing the new record. Sure. So a lot of what I'm doing is tracks from this record. But, sure. you know, that's just something that, that you got to understand. It's, I think it's something that Buddy Guy always says is, 
is uh, play the music and love the people. And, mm -hmm. and those standards that of the people that have come before us, if you can do them well, you're giving them that, that bit of what they hoped for, for coming to see you to begin with. Yeah, well, and I don't think there's anything wrong personally no. about letting an audience know that you love and admire another artist's music. Oh, absolutely. And because, I admire an awful lot of them. Yeah, because otherwise you would be viewed as being completely a narcissistic nincompoop. Right. No, I, but like I say, when I do cover something, it tends to be from that, that <laughs> great Chicago electric 50s sound. Yeah. Which I can't get enough of. I don't, you know, I come yeah. from there and I was there then. Yeah. I mean, I, I was in the fifties in Chicago. Sure. Sure. And I, I, that stuff goes way back for me, you know, in the streets and stuff. Oh, I, yeah. I, I can hear stuff in my head, but, uh, and I would definitely do my very best to cover that the way it was done. Sure. Well, my personal goal is to learn all the blues songs I can find about trains. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a lot a, of them. I have a train song on my last record, Enjoy the, uh, Enjoy the Ride. I think it's, no, it might be on Grit, Grease and Tears. Uh, and it's about the light at the end of her tunnel. Uh -huh. The train, you know, but that, that band is just a train and it's moving. You know, you can, sure. hear, the, you can hear the heart playing the train. Train songs are, and especially with this, this instrumentation you're talking about putting together, you could, yeah. you could really do some great train songs. Well, I just, I was just thinking just for my own, own amusement, because I don't play guitar. I play a little ukulele, but yeah. I mean, just learning to sing, you know, for, for my own fun and enjoyment. And, uh, it, you know, when it comes to the blues, I'm a trumpet player. So my, yeah. you know, what I get, I, I play in a horn section if I'm, you know, or I'm playing a blues based tune in a jazz band, you know, I kind of thing. But anyways, well, you've talked about the fact that you are constantly writing. So are you currently working toward or prepping for a new album? You know, it's funny you should say that because yesterday I formulated a folder called Possible New Record. And like I had mentioned before, there were about four tunes that were slotted for the previous record that we took off because I was writing this new material that I felt really strongly about. And some of it was coming out well, I think this is a great record and I think some of it came out a lot better than I hoped. Um, so those automatically went in that trick bag, you know, Okay. and I'm reworking those right now. And then I wrote uh, four new tunes that I'm really feeling strongly about in the last couple of months. Okay. But this stuff is all in my head and yeah. it's really difficult right now, you know, my husband's a bass player and that's all good, but he can't hear all that stuff swishing around in there. And so we might get some keys together. I have to kind of wait until I can get back over to Johnny Lee Shell's studio and we can work some magic and, and sure. see if any of this is uh, do a little bit of what would you call that pre-production? Mm -hmm. So yeah. yes, when I'm going to do this, Mm, not for a couple of years, I don't think. Okay. All right. Probably not another 
you know, year and a half, we have a, a property that we're selling. Mm -hmm. And if it sells and if it all goes well, then there will some financial recompense. I can put that towards putting another album together. But sure. right now, this one, this one's just out since June. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know so. it's it's a fairly new one. It's just it's great to know that the next one is in the works because yes, we will look we will look forward to your oh, new your you. next one because and like I mentioned, I'm writing for a lot of other people. Sure, and they're giving me ideas of you know, well, this is what I this is the subject matter, and you know my style, mm -hmm. so see what you can come up with, and so those are all in there too because they're good enough. And if they don't want them, I might just take them back. <laughs> well, there you have it. There you have it. You know, it's myself. always, always something, you know, good, good to know. I had a, a buddy of mine who uh, uh, I knew when I was in grad school and after he got his degree, he went to Nashville and he was a songwriter and he told me about how he sold songs. He himself yeah. was not a performer, but he would do a demo and then, you know, and, uh, it was always interesting. He would go in and, and, and sit with the job, uh, the song uh, jobber, or, or no, that wasn't the right term. But anyway, a person who uh, had connections and he'd listen to Eric's song and he'd say, oh, I think that'd be a good song for so-and-so. And then right. he'd listen to the next song. So, oh, I think that'd be a good song for so-and-so. And he'd get in the Rolodex and he'd call him up, say, I'm sitting here with Eric. I think this would be a great song for you know, whoever the person represented to record, he said, let's set up a meeting and, you know, that sort of thing. So I know it's not necessarily the initial idea that takes time. It's all the inner workings of finding time to lay it down and to work it through and so forth. But I'm so happy to know that the potential is there and will oh, always encourage I'm, my I'm listeners. Never gonna, I'm never going to stop. Well, there you, know. you go. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm never going to stop writing or singing or performing. I mean, I've been blessed with pretty good health for, you know, my age and and yeah. my voice seems to be stronger than ever. So, Why you know, not? and and the fact that I have all this time now that we're retired and, you know, we worked both of us worked endless hours with kids and mortgages and, you know, the drill. So, sure. you know, now it's just our time and and travel certainly isn't a real popular possibility right now. Yeah. So, so we, we do music. That's what we do. That's, that's our yep. cathartic. That's um, what we do here in message. our home. <laughs> that's what we do. We, we create, and then we plan some menu, you know, sure. I'm, I've sure. really gotten into cooking. That's my oh, new wonderful. thing. Yeah. I, I make a mean chicken tikka masala. I'm telling you. Oh, and my that's apple good to know. pie, my apple pie is out of this world. Wow. Really? Well, seriously. You know, I have a, <laughs> uh, I don't know if you know Gina Cecilia. Yes. Oh. You know, she's on Vistone. I know. And, well, and, she was. I think she's with yeah. the Blue Elan now. Yes, that's correct. But she was with Vistone and I, I had oh. her on as a guest, but she has branched out now and she is I selling do. her own brand of uh, like uh, marinara sauce and, and she posts recipes. I keep up with her on Facebook and she's always posting recipes and things that she's cooking and, and uh, she does so, this, uh, uh, Philly cheesesteak stuffed pepper. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. That's gotta be, that's gotta be the most amazing thing. Yeah. Ever. Cause she's bringing together, you know, her, 
you know, being from Philadelphia, she's bringing that to it. So it's, it's really awesome. And I, you know, doing this podcast has been very uplifting for me because I've had an opportunity to meet and talk with people like yourself from coast to coast and to find out what you're doing musically. And, uh, and it's been really, it's, it's been exciting for me and very fulfilling uh, since I'm not doing a lot of playing. I did have a gig last night, but I, but, uh, uh, I haven't uh, been doing a lot of playing or rehearsing you know, since uh, COVID. But anyway, Deb, is there anything else you would like to add or tell my audience that I have not asked you about? Well, let me think for a second, just, Special thanks to Viztone Records. Uh, special thanks to uh, Richard Rosenblatt and uh, Amy Bratt and yep. those folks. I mean, they're doing a hell of a job promoting the record. I'm really pleased. Special thanks to my wonderful producers, Tony Bronigal and Rick Ryder. It's those guys bring genius to everything they do. Mike Finnegan, you know, Johnny Lee Shell. They're just, I'm, I'm so lucky to have the opportunity to play with these great people and, and have people like Rick in my life to, you know, keep the ball rolling and, and keep music alive. And, and I'm just thankful to be part of any part of it. Always. I'm grateful. I'm extremely grateful. Whatever contributions I can make as a blues artist and singer, I'm just, I'm incredibly grateful. Well, Deb, thank you for taking time to talk with me today and being part of my life, because oh, it's been really you. a wonderful uh, hour to have spent with you talking about music. I, I, I just feel better already than I did an hour ago. So That's very fantastic. good. And I want to wish you all the best with what I'm sure is going to be a continued successful musical future. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it so much. And thank you so much for having me today. You bet. My discovery composer of the week is Eric Nathan. Eric first came to my attention this past weekend on Saturday night when I viewed via television the dedication concert by the Milwaukee Symphony Orchestra of the new Bradley Center Concert Hall in Milwaukee. The orchestra opened their concert with the premiere of Nathan's opening, commissioned by the Milwaukee Symphony specifically for the opening of their new concert hall. The piece was remarkable, with musicians spread around the perimeter of the hall as well as on stage. It was a very fine opening for the concert. Eric Nathan, born in 1983, his music has been called as diverse as it is arresting, with a constant vein of ingenuity and expressive depth, according to the San Francisco Chronicle, thoughtful and inventive, the New Yorker, and as a marvel of musical logic, Boston Classical Review. Nathan has been commissioned by leading ensembles and has been honored with awards including ASCAP's Rudolf Nissen Prize, four ASCAP Morton Gould Awards, BMI's William Schumann Prize, Aspen Music Festival's 
Jacob Druckmann Prize, a Charles Ives Scholarship from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, and Leonard Bernstein Fellowship from the Tanglewood Music Center. In 2015, Albany Records released a debut album of Nathan's solo and chamber music entitled Multitude Solitude, Eric Nathan. Produced by Grammy-winning producer Judith Sherman, featuring the Momenta Quartet, trombonist Joseph Alessi, violist Samuel Rhodes, oboist Peggy Pearson, pianist May Rui, and trumpeter Hugo Moreno. Les Poissons Rouge presented a CD release concert of Nathan's music in October 2015. In 2019, Chelsea Music Festival Records released Eric Nathan, Dancing with J.S. Bach, featuring conductor Ken David Mazur, in Nathan's two suites of orchestrations of Bach's keyboard works. In May 2020, Gil Rose and the Boston Modern Orchestra Project released a portrait album of Nathan's orchestral and large ensemble music on the BMOP sound label. Nathan's music has additionally been released on Bridge Records. Nathan is also a passionate educator and advocate for contemporary composers. He serves as Associate Professor of Music and Composition and Theory at Brown University's Department of Music. In 2018, he was awarded Brown University's most prestigious award for junior faculty, the Henry Merritt Riston Fellowship. Nathan completed his doctorate doctorate studying at Cornell with Stephen Stuckey, Roberto Sierra, and Kevin Ernst. His master's from Indiana University studying with Claude Baker and Sven David Sandstrom. His BA from Yale College where he studied with Catherine Alexander, John Halla, Matthew Souter, and trumpeter Alan Dean and a diploma from the pre-college division of the Juilliard School, where he studied composition with Ira Taxine. Nathan additionally was a comp composition fellow at Tanglewood, Aspen, Edelberg, and the Composers Conference. The All Music Guide lists 18 recordings of Eric Nathan's music. In my show notes is a link to a YouTube video performance of Nathan's composition, Just a Moment, for two antiphonal oboes. I selected this piece because it is similar in techniques, that is, overlapping sounds from the stage and from the seats in the hall, that he also used so effectively in his piece for the Milwaukee Symphony opening. That wraps episode number 49. My show notes, along with links to artist websites, recording label websites, YouTube videos of artist performances, are all posted on my Facebook page, The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. On Thursday, October 7th, 
I will be interviewing Seacliff, New York, based Americana singer-songwriter Roger Street Friedman. Upcoming podcasts will include interviews with veteran of the band Asleep at the Wheel and blues singer Johnny Nicholas, indie pop singer-songwriter Grace Womack, and New York City-based big band composer, arranger, and leader Migiwa Migi Miyajima. So don't touch that dial. If you have questions, comments, or a suggestion of an artist, composer, or musical style for me to consider, you may email me at h-u-r-s-t-c at u-w-m dot e-d-u. So until next time, this is Professor Craig W. Hurst and Carmel the Wonder Dog signing off from the musical universe of Professor Hurst. Have a great day.